0: Welcome to DLA Piper's Better Contracts podcast series. My name is Silvia Ebersberger, a partner in the commercial contracts team based in Germany at the global business law firm DLA Piper. Welcome to today's episode in which I, together with my colleagues Gerrit Stoke, commercial contracts partner in our UK office, and Gustav Lundin, commercial contracts partner in our Sweden office, we'll be exploring the topic of non-equity cooperation or strategic partnerships, how some call it. We will be discussing why in particular commercial lawyers need to get involved in this type of transaction, where the differences are compared to equity joint ventures and which legal topics need particular attention to reach a sustainable and balanced partnership. So gar- non-equity corporations or strategic partnerships seem to be an increasing trend in the current situation of supply uncertainties uh, where we see shortage in raw material, energy problems and uh, also shortage in some components. Why do you think this is the case?
1: Thanks Sylvia. We certainly have seen quite a significant increase in corporations or commercial joint ventures or strategic partnerships being used by clients across a whole range of different sectors and exactly the uncertainties that you've mentioned seem to be the things that are driving that new rise in interest in, in these kinds of commercial models. During the recent shocks as a result of the COVID pandemic and the supply chain difficulties that have come off the back of that, I think a lot of organisations have realised that they can't rely on the old slightly adversarial model of customer supplier for a really robust supply chain. They're finding that the idea that if you're a customer, you can assume that if your supplier suffers difficulties, you'll be able to find other suppliers of those components hasn't necessarily been the case. And therefore this has led to a much greater awareness of the fact that you know customers and suppliers really are in it together and do need to partner in order to ensure their mutual success. I think that um, in some sectors there are other factors that are driving that as well. So we're starting to see increasingly complex products, increasingly technology-dependent products, and obviously the the fact that the supply chain shortages have particularly impacted uh, semiconductors and other high-tech components has really underscored the fact that if you are undertaking a manufacturing arrangement, or if you are undertaking a joint development arrangement, or a, a research and development project. Doing that on the basis of, of some kind of cooperation is actually a very sensible way to do that because it allows both parties to sort of see the thing as delivering win-win outcomes rather than an old win-lose mindset that seems to go with the sort of customer supplier models that these partnerships are replacing.
0: Yeah, exactly. But when we compare it to the more traditional way of cooperating, so the equity joint ventures, what is missing here is really the corporate structure. So we will still have separate entities on both sides and we do not have a manager with an entire team managing all the day-to-day topics. So the parties really stay independent and need to somehow build or yeah, a comparable structure to that missing management structure that we see in equity joint ventures. So they need Cremia where they can discuss all the operation topics and also escalation procedures where they discuss what happens if something went wrong. And this, to my opinion, really increases the level of and, and the amount of contractual clauses that we need in the agreements to really build all these operational topics into the agreements. Would you share this view, Gustav?
2: Yes, thank you, Sylvia. Yeah, yes, indeed. I think that's especially comparing again two equity joint ventures or similar cooperation vehicles. I mean, a non-incorporated corporation obviously has the benefit of being or lacking the corporate structure in the sense that you can design the cooperation really from a blank paper, as you indicated. Now, that said, of course, that also means that there are a lot of concepts and topics that the parties need to think about, and that are not really there in a sort of predefined way in that you would have in an equity corporation. So you need to design the cooperation structure really from beginning to the end, focusing on how you initiate the cooperation, how you manage the cooperation during the agreement term and also how you end up uh, or how you wind down the cooperation sooner or later if that is indeed the intention that is going to be a time-limited corporation, for instance. So it's much more of a blank paper start in a non-incorporated fashion. And that, of course, as you say, requires a lot of thinking and also some creativity in the sense that you need to create comparable structures, I would say, in terms of decision making. You may want to have some sort of informal board, for instance, and you also need to think about all these situations that you may come across in terms of anonymity between the parties and, so, and uh, for instance, where you might need to escalate issues and matters in various ways, going back maybe even to top-level management of each party,
1: really. I would echo all of those comments from Gustav. and I, I think that the governance point and the idea of having to replicate the sorts of governance structures that almost come for free where you've got a corporate joint venture with a sort of natural board structure with it is a really important point here. And one of the things where we see lessons to be learned from the world of outsourcing to some extent, inevitably, when we're looking to build a non corporate long term cooperation arrangement, we're having to create a commercial arrangement between the parties that is therefore medium to long term, something that's able to last for that longer duration than a a sort of short-term supply arrangement. And in doing so, there are elements within traditional outsourcing agreements, which tend to themselves be intended to last for multiple years, that to some extent give pointers to where you might go in relation to governance issues, change issues, dispute issues, innovation issues, and so on and so forth. And so replicating some of those structures from a contractual perspective is a good way to sort of make up for the fact that you're not able to rely on some of the bits that come for free, as I say, with a corporate joint venture arrangement.
2: Maybe just to add to what you're saying again there, Gareth, I think that many of the considerations that pop up when you do an incorporated corporation will come into play also in an agreement-based setting. So many of the Input issues, for instance, where you have to value the contribution that each party is able to make in the beginning of the corporation, for instance, will be there, be it a financial valuation or a commercial or operational one. For instance, if you inject or, or contribute with background IP, for instance, I think we'll talk about that in a moment and how you deal perhaps with differencing levels of ambition for the corporation as we go along. Maybe one party is interested in leveraging uh, technology advantage because it wants to be a technology leader while the other party is uh, very mindful of costs. How do you deal with that? That's a very difficult decision, of course. And of course, again, to the winding up aspects, if there is a need to wind down the cooperation or if there's a material breach or contractual breach, how you, how do you deal with that in a critical sense where you might have to consider various event of default, stylish um, arrangement before you can terminate the contract and so on? Much in the same way as you would have to think about those issues in the setting of, an, of a shareholders agreement, I would say.
0: Yeah, but this really calls for a tailor-made solution. And as you said, Gustav, we would have to start almost on a blank page And using terms and conditions, standard terms and conditions that one of the parties would use towards its customers or suppliers in general do not fit at all. And so it takes longer to draft the respective agreements, to sit down with the respective departments, to really have all their inputs and to have a tailor-made solution that at the end fits to the party's intentions and reflects all what you discussed. And this, to my experience, also leads to a a certain situation of balance because when we are dealing with different clients and one tries to impose its own terms to the other party you immediately get into a fighting mode so to say and the parties appear not on the same level anymore but when you really start on a blank page with referring back to some of course standard schemes and methodologies and, and clauses that you see in other clause in, in other agreements then this gives the opportunity to really negotiate on the same level for both parties and to have something that at the end fits the very concrete cooperation and the very concrete intention the parties pursue with their strategic partnership.
1: I think that's a really good point, Sylvia. And having a very, very clear-eyed view at the outset of exactly how the commercial arrangement is intended to work, what is it that both sides are bringing to the party? How is it that the arrangement is going to be structured in a very granular level of detail. And how is it going to be generating commercial benefit for both parties? Is it intended to be sort of almost a profit-making venture in its own right? In which case, how is that then going to be shared between the parties? How is that upside sort of divided up in that sense? If there is the possibility of there being risk or, or loss, how is that risk and loss therefore going to be divvied up between the parties, is it fair for one of them to sort of bear all of that supply-side party in the arrangement? Or does that need to be something where the customer is bound to sort of make good on some portion of any shortage that is suffered by the venture as a whole? So there's an awful lot of these things, which again, you have to consider in a very even-handed way and in a way that does allow that kind of win-win outcome to be played out in due course.
0: Yeah. And and for us lawyers, it would mean that it's necessary to sit down really with the operational people and that the business departments have to draw the entire picture, as you mentioned, from the beginning to the end until the winding up and imagine what could happen along the entire period of the corporation so that we can put it into proper clauses. Because the commercial framework needs to be clear and then it's somehow easy for us to write the right contract, but uh, this needs to be done beforehand with all stakeholders involved. And Gustav, you mentioned IP already. This is often a point where parties discuss, in particular when they contribute and uh, where contributions are on both sides, know-how is created on both sides. IP is often a tricky point. Do we see any specifics, in particular in Sweden, how the corporation partners deal with that? Joint IP maybe might be an interesting term to discuss.
2: Yeah, I think we work with the background, foreground concepts quite a lot that I think are commonly seen in most or many jurisdictions, to put it that way. I think we, of course, have this great challenge that we discussed initially about how you value the IP that each party brings to the table, if any, in the first instance, when you launch the cooperation, maybe you have a pharmaceutical company that's cooperating with another pharmaceutical company, but where the value in the IP is very skewed such that one collaboration partner has great value there, should there be a compensation mechanism in that case from the other party and an invoicing arrangement where you are compensated for bringing a lot of skills and know-how and possibly even registered IP to the table. That's, of course, the first conceptual topic that you can think about already in the beginning of the cooperation when you launch it, as mentioned. And so possibly the more complex and more heavily negotiated terms in many cases will be, however, the foreground aspects. Which of the cooperation partners will own the IP that is created as part of the cooperation going forward? And of course, it's only your imagination that sets the limits there. It's, there are many, many solutions you can think about and design. And as it is typically so that it results in a bespoke solution in many ways. Maybe you have a setup where one party will own intellectual property that relates to a certain field of use if they are in different industries or for certain applications and so on. And maybe you have one party owning certain intellectual property rights, but licensing that back to the other party in a broad stroke license that becomes almost like an ownership, such you have a joint ownership style arrangement, but using a license model. Because what we generally try to avoid under Swedish law is to actually have joint ownership of IP, because that is dealt with by means of very old legislation that isn't really fit for purpose in these contexts, I would say. And while it might appear attractive to many corporation partners to have IP being owned jointly, sort of gives the impression of a sort of fruitful cooperation where there has been a win-win, it is very cumbersome from a legal perspective in that every decision about that IP would have to be joint. And that is very tricky. Maybe one party prefers to patent an invention being made as part of the corporation, but the other party does not want to because it wants to maintain the invention secret, for instance. That's a typical classic topic that would surface if you have a joint ownership arrangement of IP. And it's usually better to avoid that kind of joint ownership of IP by means of an ownership and broad license concept instead. I don't know, Gareth, how you usually approach this from a UK perspective? Do you have similar insights?
1: Uh, everything that you've just said is something that we tend to see in a very similar way, actually, under uh, English law where, again, joint ownership, whilst it might sound like each party is able to go and freely use the Horizon the IP for whatever purpose it wishes, actually ends up in a more restrictive position than if, as you've already mentioned, one party owns and the other has a kind of broad ownership equivalent license to use the IP. So where we do want to end up in a situation where where both parties are able to sort of freely use and exploit the IP either under the cooperation arrangement while it's still in force or indeed after the cooperation arrangement when it's come to an end, we tend to go down a very similar route of ascribing ownership to perhaps party A with an ownership equivalent license for party B. I suppose all of that then... Moves us on towards the topic of, of thinking about, you know, whilst hopefully the cooperation arrangements will be something that endures for a, a long period of time and delivers that win-win benefit for both parties. What do we need to think about when it comes to winding up the arrangements and bringing the the arrangement to an end? Whether or not that's being done in the context of the arrangement having achieved its purpose and both parties feeling happy with the result, or whether it's something where one party or the other wants to get out, either because you know, different strategic direction or possibly a, a breach or other kind of difficulty with the other party. And it, it is important to sort of always bear in mind, whether it's in relation to IP or whether it's in relation to any other issue, how is this going to play out both during the term and in the event that things need to come to an end, and whether or not that's a friendly ending or an unfriendly ending. So, working out what the exit arrangements are going to be for each issue and whether or not the parties, you know, even in a situation where they're not happy with each other anymore and a dispute has arisen, still need to carry on cooperating for a period of time in order to prevent the other party's business being entirely undermined by a precipitate ending of the cooperation arrangement. is certainly something that needs to be taken into account in relation to IP or any other issue.
0: Yeah, and also with respect to commercial contributions that the parties made at the very beginning, in many corporations, it turns out after eight or 10 years, that maybe the volumes the parties estimated, the share in manufacturing capacities did not reach the goal they initially intended. And what we see compared to classical supply relations, for example, is that these corporation agreements provide for take or pay rules, that there is a A payment for unused capacity, for example, or volumes uh, that have been forecasted but not used at the end. And this is really a difference to the standard supplier-customer relationships and requires us commercial lawyers to build additional clauses into the agreement to, again, help the clients to really have a balanced agreement and and a real strategic partnership so that there's a certain kind of burden sharing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And just maybe to add to what you're saying, Sylvia, I think that many corporations, obviously, depending on their nature, involve the parties sharing certain fixed costs. And so if one party wishes to leave the table, that obviously could potentially lead to the other party being stranded with a a lot of fixed costs that it can't sort of allocate towards revenues from the corporation. And and that kind of many times makes these kind of buyout clauses quite important and oftentimes a difficult negotiation point and sometimes an infected point when you actually indeed apply them at one point or another. So it's a very tricky situation with possibly things go wrong, an infectious relationship that I have to endure for some period of time as well, where the parties sort of have to cope with each other to some extent.
0: Yeah. So... (laughs) At the end, it's a bunch, really, a bunch of topics that need to be taken into consideration, and at the end, that lead to rather long agreements. And I would be interested in your view. The corporations I have seen often involve parties from different jurisdictions. So, in any case, you have to find a way to describe the topics with internationally valid concepts so that both parties find themselves in the contract. And you also have to make a decision which law applies. So sometimes you have to even choose for a neutral law. Do you believe that there are many jurisdictional specifics when we speak about strategic partnerships? Or is it rather jurisdiction agnostic and the more international and globally valid concepts need to be implemented into the agreement? Gareth and Gustav.
1: I think that there are always... Some niceties points around exactly how the liability clause might be interpreted or nuances to what the local rules in relation to intellectual property rights are in in the places where that IP is being created that we need to think about from a, a sort of legal specifics point of view. But really, the core of any kind of commercial cooperation arrangement, commercial joint venture arrangement, strategic partnership is that commercial understanding of exactly how the arrangement is going to work. And that's a question of what each party is bringing to the table, what benefits they're expecting to get from it, and how those benefits will be shared. It's the same conversation that you have to have, regardless of where each of the two parties might be based or, or what assets they're bringing to the table and where they're being brought from. So getting those bits right makes it I think to a point that you made earlier in the conversation Sylvia, it makes it an awful lot easier to correctly document the deal if the deal is well understood and having those clear eyed conversations up front I think is is the most important point rather than arguing about jurisdiction X or jurisdiction y within within large tolerances.
2: I agree to everything that Garrett states um, I think what is important is that you're mindful to these topics. <sighs> again, as Gareth says, I think the core commercial topics will be the same across most countries around the globe, really, I would say. But then there will be regulatory details in terms of intellectual property, for instance, where we have certain particularities under Swedish law that you have to think about and and pick up in terms of drafting. And for instance, Sylvia, I know that in Germany, you have quite specific rules around general terms, for instance, and their application and validity and so on. So... I agree that finding a neutral jurisdiction is sometimes of benefit because you create a neutral arena for both parties. But it's important that you align the corporation with the laws of that jurisdiction such that you don't get into trouble when you apply the agreement, especially in the case, in the very infectious situation where you would end up in a dispute. You have to think about these things and possibly localize the the contracts and so on as well.
0: Yeah. Which leads us to the further episodes in our podcast series, because they exactly deal with the jurisdiction specifics, for example, related to liability. Thanks, Garrett and Gustav, for sharing your insights on corporations and strategic partnerships. And as I said, do look out for further episodes in our podcast series and click to subscribe to be the first to know. Thank you.